Sacred Pause with Jessica Winderl. Happy Thursday, yogis. Jessica here, and we are now halfway through with season three of the One Sacred Pause podcast, which is super exciting. Um, so before we get into this week's episode, just a couple of announcements. My guest, Dr. Margaret Koblasova this week is a really special guest, someone um, who I've known for a while and is uh, very inspirational and has been very um, impactful in who I am as a teacher. And I'm so excited. Not only does she have a connection to Norway through me, but also um, through her family and growing up. And so we are working together to bring Maggie here in, right now it's looking like June 2020, to run an Ayurvedic cleanse. So it's a three-week program. The first week and the third week you do on your own at home. The second week uh, you meet with the group and Maggie and we do all the panchakarma and food and gentle yoga and all the amazing things so keep an eye out we haven't officially announced that yet we're still nailing down the details but it looks like it will be june 2020 in oslo and this is really an amazing opportunity to to work with maggie so that's exciting and then the second announcement is just that registration is up and running for our oslo january 2020 vinyasa and ayurveda teacher training uh, that starts through the atman yoga school so if you're thinking about taking the next step diving deeper into your practice and your studies as a yoga student and beginning to step into the seat of the teacher then check out our website www.atmanyogaschool.com or send us an email at hello at atmanyogaschool.com all right here we go All right, welcome to another episode of the One Sacred Pause podcast. I'm Jessica, your host, and today I am very excited, uh, thrilled actually, to welcome onto the podcast my very first Ayurveda teacher, Maggie Koblasova. So welcome, Maggie. Om Namah Shivaya. Thank you so much for having me, Jessica. You're so welcome. It's so such a treat to be able to connect with you. And um, there's so many things that I want to talk with you about. But the first thing is I just want to congratulate you because you just graduated this past weekend with your Ayurveda doctor degree, which is amazing. It's been a, a wonderful long journey. Yes. And it's it's just I can't believe that I'm actually here, but the the piece of paper is one thing, and the rest of it is just opening a, another new level of exploration and learning and hopefully helping people one at a time. Mm. Can you, I guess we can just dive right in because I'm so curious um, to know about what that process looked like for you and how long it took you, and some of the examples of the curriculum that you did. Will you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Well, I went to the California College of Ayurveda, which is founded and run by a very brilliant man, Dr. Mark Halpern. I started back in 2000 and, I don't know, the early 2000s. And uh, for my uh, practitioner, 
um, program and went through an internship there. The program has evolved quite a bit since in the last 15 years or so, but it gave me a, a foundation to get started. And then um, through the years, there were different pieces. Last year I did, um, in preparation to enter the doctor program, I had to do some, you know, since it had been such a long time, some kind of catching up. And I took dermatology and eye, ear, nose, and throat. And just a, they, there are just different specialized systems. And they're in um, my program, it was, they're, they're, it was separated that way. So um, I went through all of that. And so to say really how long it took, I'd have to add it up. And it would be maybe three full years, I'm guessing, because there was two years and then another year and then smatterings of a month here, a month there, two months here, two months there, throughout the years, mainly in the beginning at the end. Hmm. So would you travel to uh, Nevada City, California for all of the training or was some of it online? It was both. The training was uh, in Nevada City for things we had to be in contact with, like advanced pulse and um, some of the other, you know, really hands-on things where we would learn how to um, do physical exams and things like that. But otherwise, we used technology quite a bit. There was a virtual classroom that we'd enter um, every week and spend the better part of a day there. And you could see, actually, it was kind of nice um, rather than being in a physical classroom because you'd see everybody's face. And we'd raise our hand and we'd and probably if people go to school now, they and they do anything online, maybe they have a similar experience. But it was the first time for me, and I loved it. I loved that virtual classroom. We really had relatively few technical issues, so it, it was pretty smooth. Mm, that's so cool. And when you, I guess, what led you to decide that you wanted to continue your studies? What leads anybody on this path? There's that inner urge. It just like, what would life be without it? So, and that would be a big empty place. That would be not pursuing that spark of joy that comes right from the heart center. Mm. Yes. Oh, I love that. And one of the things that I think is super cool and probably interesting to people listening is um, I want to backtrack a little bit and hear kind of more of the beginning of your story, but we can come back to that in a second. Speaking specifically about your um, journey becoming an Ayurvedic doctor, I know you had told me in an email that originally you thought that when you graduated, maybe you would continue to lead trainings and do more group format stuff. And then you were like, well, actually, the deeper I got into the program and the more I was working one-on-one, I found that I was actually really interested in doing that. And so I loved that when I read it in your email because it really just made me think about this idea that we have permission to change. And the more that we start to learn and study yoga and Ayurveda, the more that things start to shift internally for us. And then perhaps those shifts begin to inform the way in which we interact with the external world. And I just, I found it so inspiring to be like, oh, I thought 
I was going to do one thing and then I started to learn more and I actually changed direction and I'm, I'm now maybe going this way. What has been kind of your experience with that? Oh, I love that. That's so insightful. It is a process, yes, of learning self-referencing. And that's really a big part of, I think, the healing process for all of us is to, and well, that's what meditation does too. It helps us turn inward with all pratyahara, that, that withdrawal of the senses or refinement of the senses into subtler and subtler vibrational frequencies that we can notice and identify with rather than the the more um, physical ones and, and, you know, like moving through the elements from earthy to watery to fiery to airy to etheric. And, and of course, it's a blend of all of them, but the shift, the focus, the median, or the, it becomes more and more um, higher frequency vibration, I think. So it's with that self-referencing and we can change and we do change and it, um, but it, it's as simple as following that where the joy lies, you know, with yoga and Ayurveda and even Jyotisha, it's, it is just following that spark of joy. Ayurveda is for the body and yoga is for the mind. It's really the, um, the key to healing psychologically and the more we study the yoga we know well in yoga the second sutra yoga chitta vritti niroda yoga is the stilling of the modifications of the mind and it and so yoga really is for the mind and then jyotisha is for the causal body we have you know the three bodies the physical body the subtle body and the causal body so ayurveda takes care of the physical body because as we study samkhya and there's a manifestation of the universe and that is the creation from the cosmic womb pure potential for form and the whole universe falls down through greater and greater vibrational frequencies and then manifests as the physical world we um, <clears throat> um, we can use that some. Can I? I just lost my train. I'm sorry. Yeah, um, no, that's okay. Yeah, I think just coming back to the idea of how perhaps through this this reflection and self study and learning more about Ayurveda and your journey to become an Ayurveda doctor, how maybe your idea of what you thought you were going to do when you graduated shifted a little bit from thinking about working with groups and group trainings to now coming to this idea of really working one-on-one -on -one for a long time period to really see somebody's um, progression back into health or back into balance. Well, you know, yes, there is that individual focus and Ayurveda says everything, every person is unique and it's interesting to see how people can go out of balance. And it's interesting to actually experience people coming in with a similar diagnosis and you treat them very differently based on their their doshic presentation and their their constitution and, you know, what is out of balance. Um, because someone with a cold, you might treat them with warmth or you might treat them with a, a cleansing of the decongestant. Um, it, it just depends. It depends on what is the most important and the, 
thing that's phenomenal is that it really works. It really works working with the, the doshas and balancing them and doing that cleansing and the purification in the proper proportions. And, and just like in waves, I found that you don't have to do it perfectly, but you need to do it consistently. Mm. And then, and make these little, it's like the, the waves of the ocean washing up onto the shore. And it makes these little changes and smooths out all the sand. <laughs> but it, it, that vision comes to my mind quite a bit when I'm working with the patients. Mm. And so now you're back in Park City in Utah, which is where you and I met. And uh, what's kind of the next step for you? Like you already have your um, Ayurvedic business. Are you going to start working as a doctor in Park City? Are you going to continue to work um, with the California College of Ayurveda in some capacity with them? Or what's kind of your vision for the somewhat immediate future? Well, I'm going to work with patients, and I do, uh, every year I teach Ayurvedic yoga therapy at Shivananda Ashram in the Bahamas uh, on Paradise Island. It's wonderful, and I recommend it for everyone. It just is, it was a transformational program for me. Uh, So I do work with California College of Ayurveda, and um, here I also teach the AYT training. I do cleanses, group cleanses, and they're small groups. And that they're small groups because everyone is individual and everyone needs individual attention. And yet there is a a, a um, certain economy of effort when you do it as a group. And there is that support. So twice a year, except for this past year when I've been doing other things, I do Ayurvedic cleanses here for people. And they are pretty involved and I really like them um they it I think that those have helped many people here and people love them they just love them I have a lot of people that come over and over and over again and they're so I'm happy to do those they're a ton of work but Mm. it's very very satisfying and fulfilling so I will be doing that um, I plan on continuing uh, putting on workshops and things, but maybe um, a little more online. We'll see how that goes. I have so much to do. I want to teach herbal medicine making <sighs> just for people and in you know everyday people, so we can take more charge of our own health. That's really one of the big blessings of Ayurveda is taking charge of your own health and your own well-being in everyday ways. The the daily practices of dinacharya, dina means daily. So of you know, getting up, oiling your body and tongue scraping and cleansing your your sense organs, your eyes, your nose, your mouth, your ears, your skin for the sense of touch, and nourishing them is it it is very 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 important and really sets up a person's body for health and when the body is feeling balanced then the mind can has a has the environment in the physical world to be able to calm mm. yeah and that's needed even more it mm-hmm. seems like than just even a few years ago like 
our society's continuing to progress at such an expansive and exponential rate that learning even simple things like doing the the daily abhyanga, the oil massage, or using your tongue scraper in the morning, they're very simple and yet so effective. And they can have such a, a profound effect on how the body feels and then ultimately how, on how our mind feels when there's so much hecticness and chaos in the world around us. And I know I, I don't think, I don't think a day has gone by where I've not used a tongue scraper and the thought of it makes me go in my mouth because <laughs> it's, it's just like, eh, it's so ingrained in what I do every single day that I think I would really miss it if I didn't. And it would irritate me. And, and I mean that like on a vibrational level, I think it would irritate me <laughs> if I missed it. But I agree with what you're saying where at some point, like Ayurveda, we need the guidance of a doctor or a practitioner, but at some point, a lot of it is self-regulated. And so yeah. if we, it's intuitive, it's, it's tapping into the natural rhythms of the environment around us. And the support of a community like you're creating in Norway and in Europe um, where you have a group of people that are all doing it, even yes. if you aren't talking about it every day, that is just, it's huge. It's really huge to have the support of other people doing the same thing and going in the same direction. That's really Sangha. Oh, I agree. And that was a big part of why I created the Atman Yoga School was because I was looking for that community and I wanted to be around people who wanted to talk about these things. And uh, I joke a lot. Maggie in training because, um, you know, the Western world, we are so obsessed with our food and there's so many cooking shows on Netflix and there's so many, every celebrity comes out with a cookbook and we're talking about food, food, food. Did you try the new restaurant? And yet it's like considered impolite to talk about your poop. <laughs> it's like <laughs> Ayurveda is sort of the opposite. Well, I mean, of course the food is so important. It's the medicine, but we have to like look at both, both <laughs> what goes in our body and what comes out of our body and, you know, having a safe space where you can kind of start to talk about the functions of the body, <laughs> the waste products of the body, be like, oh, what does your sweat smell like? I don't know. What does your sweat smell like? And getting, having like a reference or a, um, a sounding board. Because in the Western world, we're not taught. You just like, you use the restroom, you flush the toilet, and you don't look back. And in Ayurveda, it's like, no, take a minute. In Ayurveda school, I remember long ago, we all had to give urine samples in these little jars. And then we lined them all up and we had to, they wanted us to taste it. We didn't Ooh. go that far, though. Because we are Westerners after all. But we did um, smell it and, and make different, you know, look at the different qualities of all of the different urine samples that came out about color clarity and, and smell. And um, and then we did this interesting little test where you take a, a dropper with sesame oil in it and you put a drop right on the into the jar and see how the drop of sesame oil scattered or did not scatter. And that would tell you with excess dosha in the um, in the urine. But we in, in yes. Oh, well, no, I was just going to say yes. Um, in my 300 hour teacher training, we do that exercise. And ah, it's, um, 
I, the trainings are a 10 day intensive module. And so we just did this in the past module and that just happened in May. And we also, for that week, I provide everybody with pH strips. And so we also are testing the pH of the urine, the pH of saliva, just mm-hmm. to kind of have a general idea of where the body's out at in terms of alkalinity or acidity. But same thing, everybody had their urine sample in a jar. We lined them up and yeah, seeing how different everybody's body can be is, is so, it's really eye-opening in a weird way. Mm-hmm, it is. And, you know, in, in Ayurveda, we call it ahara and vihara. Ahara is what comes in and it's what comes in not just through the mouth, but through all the senses. So the sense of taste would be coming in through the mouth, but what we come, what we bring in through our eyes, our ears. So um, it's interesting. We let things into our mind. We would never take into our body at the vibrational level. We'll let, we'll watch a horror movie, but we'd never eat the equivalent of a horror movie and food. I hope maybe we can sometimes, I don't know, but um, the, and then, so everything that comes in is we monitor that as an Ayurvedic physician and see what is actually coming into this person. And then everything that comes out is vihara. And that is not just like your your elimination or your urination or your sweat, but it's also your expression, your um, your work and what comes out as far as your thoughts because you have you have everything coming in and then your mind is churning these impressions and digesting them hopefully and the ayurvedic physician wants to help you digest all of those impressions completely because of course the the end product of complete digestion is ojas that capacity to hold energy and vitality that energetic reserve it's like your reservoir tank of of energy and vitality and the end product of incomplete digestion is ama Mm. which is undigested material that can become toxic that can be undigested emotions undigested impressions of what you see because you're just distracted and that comes into being mindful and the importance of being mindful not and also for the physical body the rubber hits the road with food you're to digest your food and that can be as simple as as Deepak Chopra would say and I still love to say this is but I have to think it through to say it right chew your liquids and drink your solids which really means just chewing a lot, really paying attention to that first step of digestion in the mouth, Mm. letting the saliva mix with everything until it becomes a bolus to go in and, and maximum surface area to go into your stomach so that the hydrochloric acid and, and other enzymes, uh, can work on it in the, in the stomach as it churns and then move it into the small intestine where it gets bombarded with uh, all of the alkalinizing enzymes and the carbohydrate and digestion, digestion of fats there and moving through so that it can really, um, really be completely digested and nourish all the tissues because in Ayurveda, the tissues are formed sequentially and this is a, and they're fed sequentially. So 
it first is going to be feeding the rasa, which is all the clear fluids of the body, which is, of course, the clear fluid, the non-red blood cell part of your uh, blood. And the, then the red blood cells are fed because they're bathed in this. That's called rasa. And in Ayurveda, a big term is rasayana. And that is actually to um, make sure that the rasa of your body is really good quality. It's like having good quality soil to grow your garden and and that's what a rasayana would do so we work a lot just at the level of rasa because Mm. from there all the other tissues are formed and so to have good tissues you want to make sure that you start there Mm. so cool and that's why having, like you were saying, having a community around you to talk about these things is also important because Ayurveda has such an importance on our emotional health and feelings of connection and understanding and being seen and ultimately, of course, love. And I think that's something that I've certainly spent a lot of time thinking about in the last few years. Um, I've been in Norway three years now. And leaving behind a community in the U.S. that I felt really safe and stable and connected in and coming to a community where I really have no connections and no foundation is very unsettling and very vitiating. And so being able to have my school and being able to find other people here who want to talk about this stuff is just so amazing. And, um, you know, one of the things I shared with you before we started recording that I, I talk in my teacher trainings a lot about quite a bit, or at least mention, um, is looking to you as sort of an inspiration in terms of how do we share as teachers, how do we share the knowledge that we have, have gotten and keeping kind of that essence of the lineage where we don't own the information and being able to share it with other people is one of the ways in which we can connect and sort of unravel or demystify this experience of being human and being like, oh, so this happens to me when I eat this kind of food. Oh yeah, me too. And what about you? And it's so exciting to see that. And um, I just would like to say, Please come to Norway, Maggie. Come teach. <laughs> oh, I would love to. I think Norway is the most beautiful country in the world. I lived there when I was young for six months. I don't know if that counts as living there, but I was there for six months and I lived in the uh, up in near Sonsvatten. Oh, I don't know where that is. It's up by Blindern. Oh, I don't know. I don't know where that is oh, either. The, the University of, of Norway. Oh, in Oslo. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, okay. I thought it was a town. Okay. Yes. No, no, no. And then I went to, um, I spent uh, Christmas and New Year's up in Sporkmo, just about an hour outside of Trondheim. And so I was there for about a month and a half of my stay. And then later, when I was older, I, I had a wonderful opportunity to take an extended trip in Norway. And we went up through the Goldbrunsen Valley and up to the highest mountain in Norway and then down to the fjords. And I actually have some connections in Mundal, some relatives and some um, relatives in Rustad, which is in the in Dukka near the Goldbrunsen Valley. And so, yes, I'm 
I did 23andMe. I'm 51% Norwegian. My mother mother was first generation here in the United States. Um, I guess my dad had 2%. He must have had 2% Norwegian in him. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Um, Yeah, I knew you had had been here before, but um, I didn't realize it was such a strong connection in terms of your heritage. But yes, well, I mean... It would be, I would love to, to arrange something and host you because I know so many people would love to learn from you. And I think it'd be really cool if you could come and do a, do a cleanse. Oh, I would do it in, an, in a heartbeat. <clears throat> the yes. cleanses are, are wonderful and, and just bringing that would be great. Um, it would be higgly. Yes, I'm saying that right. <laughs> or bra, or uh, yeah, barahigle is I like. Forget. You're welcome, but um, yeah, because Ayurveda here in Norway is so new, and mm. there's, I think, I think I know of two practitioners in the country, and there's no mm. no doctors, and it's very very new, very young here. But I think more and more people are getting excited about it. And it's a large part of my teacher training. And because it works and coming back to this idea of like, all right, well, how can we empower ourselves to take charge of our health and to take a little bit more responsibility for monitoring our lifestyle And I don't mean that in just terms of like, okay, you need to get exercise three times a week. You need to drink more water. You need to go to bed earlier. Like that's kind of what the Western (laughs) doctors say. Mm -hmm. But that Ayurveda expands on that so much. And so I think the invitation's there. So for you to come and and share your knowledge and, you know, you're, you're a beautiful teacher and very gracious teacher. And I think that's really the inspiring takeaway is how can we continue as other teachers continue to keep that at our, the forefront of our offerings rather than, I mean, you probably see this more than I do. And and you came from LA before Cal, uh, before park city, but I think in today's yoga and kind of wellness world, it's become very competitive, very combative. And there's almost this mentality of like, okay, I have to stick out somehow. I need a marketing shtick. And if, if I'm not getting clients or if I'm not getting students, then that means somebody else is. And there's like this, I don't know. Have you seen that? Yes, I have. I, I have. And, you know, it's like um, when you see that, I find that the, the balm for that is to come back to the principles and that, you know, how Ayurveda has the five elements and that's a sum kit falls in, down through the vibration of, of, of the five elements, starting with ether, which is the highest vibration. And one of the qualities that we experience when we experience ether is love and that connectedness. And balanced ether is the experience of love. And whenever we teach, whenever we develop our practice whenever we in whatever we do it's like swami ganchayam said the most important ingredient is love mm. and when you have the love there then your you yourself are in balance and you can just watch the world unfold you know in in the yoga sutras it's about letting go of desire mm. 
Mm-hmm. And we have this desire of, I like this, I don't like this, I want this, I don't want that. Well, that duality is what trips us up and keeps us with keeping our mind powerful instead of instead of that divine spark, what, you know, give own definition. Um, and it's letting go of that mind stuff and living and identifying in our own true nature, in the Atman, which you named your school after. Mm-hmm. The Atman, there, there's no competition in the Atman. There's no... It just is what it is, and and we have this wonderful opportunity to witness the world unfolding and life unfolding, the universe rolling out moment by moment by moment, present by present by present by present, and we think we have to change it so that we feel comfortable, and that is our big, 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 big mistake. So the ultimate goal of yoga and Ayurveda put a certain way is to help us digest everything that's happening and let go of our likes and dislikes and that that you know aversion and it's right in the sutras it's just plain as day mm-hmm. and practicing it and noticing it is is fascinating because it's so deeply rooted not just in our own being but as a society Another reason why why sangha is so important, because to have that support of other people that feel that way, who really are loving, who just really want to give and feel that connectedness, so there isn't that isolation like um, of if I don't get it, you're going to get it, and it, there's there's that scarcity mm-hmm. because when you're when you're identified with the Atman, there's just all there is is abundance. And this is something, you know, it's continual practice, moment by moment, present moment by present moment. And, and but it's, it's one of the greatest blessings is that we don't have to be perfect to start to reap the benefit of, of experiencing more and more equanimity in our daily life, in our daily existence. Bliss is different than happiness. There's, you know, that metaphor of sometimes when we get what we want, we feel happy. And <laughs> the metaphor is that the mind just shuts up or it's like the clouds. The mind are the, is the clouds and there's a sun there. And when we get what we want, the, the mind decides to just be quiet for a, a moment. And so the clouds fall away we get to experience the sun which is always there and that is i think so true and then we think that we need to do this to make ourselves happy when all we really need to do is let our mind be still Hmm. which gets us right through the importance of meditation and that stillness and being immersed in nature and in norway you have such so beautiful just everywhere it's just i remember it'd be in the car turning one corner and another corner and and it got to be so that you probably you know 500 pictures in three weeks because i just had to take pictures of everything it was so beautiful (laughs) (laughs) um so because it's like the ink drop in the ocean of all of your cares and troubles just they just dissolve because they become so small when you can connect with the the 
that glorious nature and the unfolding of it everywhere. Mm, so beautiful. So what are, speaking of meditation, what are your personal meditation practices? What does that look like? Oh, that has evolved so much. I started with um, Paramahansa Yogananda's mm. uh, lessons way back in, I don't know when it was, early 80s. And um, I, I, I loved them. I actually went through them and I've gone through them a couple times keeping the notebook, you get the lessons every couple of weeks. And it's something I've been thinking about doing again, because it's just like all of those, those things that are really good. Each time you go through them, you learn something new, or you remember something that has gone to the back of your mind and been put in storage, and you need to bring it out and oil it up and practice it again. I started with that, and I still do my, my Kriya. You know, it's like a little breathing practice to prepare for meditation. But it that has um, fallen to the background. I have to say, after all of the years of techniques, what I, truth be known, what I do now is I follow the breath. I think it's profound and effective and connects me to my own rhythms. Just the simple following the breath. I... I do have a, a ritual when I get up in the morning, and I I really love it. It's it's um, it was given to me by my spiritual guide Krishnam and I I get up I do my the beginning of my dinacharya, and then I come down into my yoga room and light a candle, and I put little going to be prasad on the altar, which I found I really love that practice. Hmm. And do sometimes I go by the different um, fruits that you do every day, like for Sunday, do an orange, and that's good for health and wealth. And today is for giving blessings to teachers and ancestors and this dried fruit. So a little a date or something I'll put on. I like to use dates. And... Uh, did I say Thursday? That's a Thursday one. And then I go through a, um, a breathing thing where I silently say Om and I have a prayer time. And then one of my favorite things is that I rub my palms together and put my palms toward my candle and let my palms fill with the light. And then I pull it and I bathe my body with my palms. And I find that very, very, very nourishing. That's after I do my alms and my prayer. Hmm. And then I'll do my breath and I'll do um, some pranayama. Often I'll do Kapalabhati and Nadi Shodhana. Those are the two standbys. Sometimes it's Nadi Shodhana and sometimes if I'm tired, I'll just do some deep breathing. Then I'll follow with like a three-part yoga breath that's smooth. And then I'll just watch my breath and sit and sit until the stillness comes. Um, I used to use my first yoga teacher, Yogi Sharma, um, gave me mala beads and a mantra. And I, I still love that. I find that very, very, very effective, like a rosary. But I would use that more in times when I need calming or, or I'm feeling a little anxious. I need my mind to still. My daily thing, I just, I just sit. I just sit and keep it simple. Mm -hmm. 
That's such good advice. Keep it simple. Because I think we, Mm -hmm. it's very easy to get pulled into the bells and the whistles of yoga or Ayurveda and like, okay, I have to have this and I have to do that. And it has to be this long and it has to be this and that. And um, when in doubt, actually toning down or pulling back can be even more powerful of an experience within the practice. Yes. And another thing that's really helpful is to have a sangha. Just a simple sangha where people get together like once a week and meditate together without fanfare. I have a sangha and they don't, there's no breathing, there's no settling. They do a reading and someone will do a reading and some of them are like Adya Shanti or just different ones that people find. Sometimes it's a poem by Mary Oliver. Whatever it is, it it kind of sets the tone and then we just sit. Mm, In Park City? In Park City, yes. And it, it's it's been going on for years and years and years, and it is a lovely group. And the group changes and shifts, but there are core people that have just been there since, I mean, probably more than a decade now. Hmm. Every every Friday at nine a.m. and and doing something like that, I think, is really helpful, just to have that anchor. Oh, that's so and, nice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So to find a group or to create a group is, is really helpful. And, and just to keep it consistent, there might just be one person or two people. And then the next time there'll be nine and then there'll be 13 and then there'll be three. And it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. That's so, yeah. I, I, oh, I'm, I would love to be able to start something like that here because there definitely is a community and. Um, for me, the tricky part is I live outside of town. And so nobody wants to come to my house. (laughs) And, and a lot of people, you know, Oslo is such an expensive city. And so a lot of people live in tiny apartments and being able to host people can be really tricky. And I guess maybe you could do it at a studio, maybe meet at a studio where there's no classes scheduled. And, but then somehow that feels more organized. And I think what you're talking about is more just like you, you show up as you are and you just let the practice meet you in that moment. You know, that I think it could be effective online too. Oh, interesting. Just getting a group together in one of those group classrooms hmm. and just coming and meeting and being together. You could have your video on or off. I mean, you're going to have your eyes closed anyway, but maybe just sometimes having the image there might add a little something energetically uh, but just meeting in a in one of those spaces that is such a good idea oh okay now my now now my vata mind is starting to uh, turn a little bit i'm like okay your your creative juices yes yes and that that longing for spiritual connection um yeah that's awesome and that would be one step closer than some of the apps. Some of the apps are great. I think the people that have run that run Headspace are inspired. I love that app. Yes. Yes, I am familiar with it. Yeah. No, it is. It's wonderful. And it's um and, and there's a lot of other ones too. I know Insight Timer and mm-hmm. it's what I love about it in particular, too, is just the fact that it's making it accessible for people who maybe are afraid of meditation or don't quite. I think there's a little bit of um, 
mysticism around what meditation is. And some people who are newer to yoga, who are newer to these practices are like, they think that the only way to meditate is in a seated silent meditation. And of Mm -hmm. course that can be very great, but it's really difficult if you've never tried to calm the fluctuations of the mind before. And so having a different way to meditate, I mean, there's so many different ways. If you're using the mantra, if you're following the breath, like you like to do, if you're doing a walking meditation in nature, if you're doing a mandala, if you're doing the japa, like, you know, or listening to a guided or a visualization meditation, or there's so many ways. And that was part of my inspiration for creating this podcast is to talk to different people about their specific or favorite meditation practices so that we can start to see that it's not the end goal is the same, but there's so many different ways to get there. You know, Jessica, I had an experience that was transformational in my experience of meditation, probably the, when I became anchored in it. And that was when I took a week and went away to a place, actually in southern Utah, and just meditated. Just meditated. It was get a and it was with a group of people. We got up in the morning, and there was the the facilitator gave a a, a yoga class, so he spoke, but it was all in silence. We made our meals in silence, and I got to work in the kitchen, and I was just, oh, it was so fun. <laughs> and But then we would do our yoga class. We would have a, um, eat breakfast, and then we'd meditate. we have a 45-minute sit, and then we'd do a 45-minute walking meditation, which the main practice was, and I hadn't done this before uh, when I first did it. it was, they had this deck, and you'd walk very slowly. And mindfully up and down the planks of the deck. And I found that I still do that because it's so calming to my mind. And then we do another sit. And so we'd end up doing five 45-minute sits and four walking meditations, one yoga class, three meals, and a um, and at the end we'd listen to we actually listened to old audio tapes <laughs> from back in the 70s uh, from an ashram and it was they were really good. I mean, there's no franchise on the truth, and the truth has no, I mean, it's eternal. So it was fabulous. It was really great. And then oh, I slept so well. And then after seven days of that, well, during that process, I found that with the quietness and the community of quietness, the bonding with the people was phenomenal. For You'd think that we had spent all this time talking and finding out about each other's lives. But we didn't. We just sat together in silence. And I learned when they talk about how meditation will can build your ojas, well, a, a half hour set or 20 minutes isn't going to do much for your ojas except maybe over the long term. But taking time like that, maybe three days or a weekend or or five days or seven days or ten days or a month, um, is transformational as far as building. If I had a disease of really um, low ojas, like an autoimmune disease, it's the first thing I would do for myself is to go and be silent and be um, and and do that kind of a, a meditation practice because it, it is um, 
meditation really occurs after pratyahara. I mean, we look at the classical yoga teachings of the eight limbs, and to really experience meditation, you are withdrawing or refining your senses so that you become more attuned to higher vibrational frequencies, the, the subtler realms. And as we begin to identify with that, we can see our physical body in a different way. Instead of identifying with our physical body and feeling like we're going to die when it's actually just the physical body that dies, we have this whole different perspective. And with meditation, it, it, the, the, the potential benefit of meditating and mindfulness in every moment and everything we do is it, it's infinite it's really infinite and so we do our practices to get into that state but really whatever it takes watching your breath um, um, doing mudra doing your asana first to quiet your body so your mind can quiet um, whatever you know to exhaust your body so mm-hmm. your mind can quiet if, if you're doing an exhaustive type of asana, but there are very great, wonderful, restorative things, balancing for the chakras. My yoga practice myself has become much more chakra-based. It's much more like uh, follows a Shivananda style, which I learned, of course, at Shivananda Ashram, and I thought, oh my gosh, I learned this back in the in the early 2000s, and why didn't, why didn't I realize what a, an amazing sequence this is? Is because I didn't. It just went right over my head. Hmm. But it's pretty much the foundation of of my asana practice now, and and it's all toward this this meditation and toward pratyahara, and toward being able to digest whatever comes into the senses. You know, there are, it's like movies. I'm picky about the movies that I watch because it's like someone is deciding what I'm going to take in. And I don't always think that what they want to feed me is good food for me. Mm. But what I'd really like to do is to be able to digest whatever I saw. Just like the, the, um, that old story about the, the, um, the guru that was invited to eat meat. And so he went and ate meat with this wealthy person and while his um chalas had to sit there and and eat something else and they said well why did you get to eat the meat and and we ate this other thing and he said because i can digest it completely and Mm. so it is um it is really a matter of digestion. It's like ayurveda says no disease can manifest without a disruption in the digestion at some level which the corollary of that is that without the um, without the production of ama, that undigested material that becomes toxic, and it's ama mix- mixing with the doshas that creates disease and dysfunction. Hmm. We have. Um, we have all that to think about it with with the ayurveda and yoga they interweave so intimately they they really are they say sister sciences i think they're even closer than that they're they're 
two sides of the same coin. And then, and then Jyotisha on top of that like Jyotisha for the causal body, what we take from life to life to life. Mm. The causal body, that part that is, that, you know, the, the physical body emanates out of. Yes, and I definitely want to talk about Jyotish because that's a really fascinating area that I think um, a lot of people listening probably have some questions about and want to know more about. But I, I have a question before we get on to that is... Um, what are some examples of specific meditation practices that might be beneficial for the different dosha types? Okay, well, I'll tell you, I can say that more in a, in a negative way, like what they shouldn't do. Yeah, no, that's great. <laughs> that's really like, important too. <laughs> like for vata, you don't want to meditate on the void mm -hmm. <laughs> because vata's in the void. <laughs> They're already etheric. Um, with vata, a, a more structured meditation, something that is more grounding. And it could be as much as making, um, bringing an earth and water element to your altar. You know, how you set up your altar can energetically affect your space and help you ground. So even with vata, I would take time to ground first, to feel my legs, to feel the earth, to send, you know, and I talk about in more new agey things, to send that grounding core down to the core of the earth and make it red and or some earthy color while red is more fiery, but it also has an earth element in it. And, and root chakra. Yes, very much so. So you feel your root. And then to... Um, to settle into focus on feeling and experiencing your muladhara, your svadhisthana chakras, your first and second chakras, so that um, you have that there. And if you want to, as a as a practice, using the bija mantras, we talked about those way back in AYT mm -hmm. of Lam and Vam. And of course, there are many. There's one for all the petals, which you can find out very easily. But the, the Lam is, you know, if you want to use mala beads and just do Lam, or if you just want to go Lum, 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 lum. But I can feel myself ground just as I do that. Maybe you even heard it in my voice. I felt it in my voice. Yeah. Um, that will ground a vata person. So vata, to have a structure, to have a mantra, and it can be a, a bija mantra, it can be... Um, you know, a, a phrase like Om Namah Shivaya or um, Om Mane Padme Om or, or, um, or even Om. And Om, when you say Om, you know, the O in Sanskrit has an has a extra power. It's like the summary of Aayu. So it gives it that extra oomph. So you could say Om. Or if you want to be you know, uh, more specific and open the channels of your body and roll the om over your palate, beginning with the first unmodified sound, ah, and then ending with the mmm, like you're digesting the whole thing, closing your lips, um, 
is a wonderful way to awaken all the channels of energies so that vata can move because vata is prana and to open the channels for the prana to move in a balanced way is going to calm vata. It's going to balance vata when a balanced vata is calm. Hmm. So for vata, I would think that those would be a wonderful way, especially if you have an imbalance. If you have an imbalance, you may even want to do your asana first so that your body can calm. Putting yourself in the angles of the poses helps your body calm, and the body and mind are a continuum. And then to sit. Now, for pitta, um, it, it's more about harmonizing, cooling, and um, having compassion for self. So uh, I would have a pitta maybe beginning with gratitude mm. and letting go of judgment for the, the, ne- the negation of how a pitta should meditate is with a lot of um, rules and judgments. This is the way it's got to be. Yeah. <laughs> and um, Vata would respond to that as being fearful. Am I doing it right? Am I doing enough? need to let go of that and just enjoy it and pitta especially needs to just enjoy it and develop that compassion the gratitude is probably the biggest component because when you have gratitude you're letting go of judgment there's no there there isn't space for both of them at the same time Mm -hmm. so to just think maybe write down um a few things you're grateful for, even one, and sit with that. And then go into the breath. Um, for pitta, if you're especially pitta vitiated at that moment, focusing on the exhalation, if you're following your breath, just go. You may even want to have a few open mouth exhalations of letting go of that heat, letting go of that holding on to the, the agenda. So Pitta needs to let go of the agenda. They always Pitta plans, so they have they always have that agenda. And when the world isn't falling into place for that agenda to be fulfilled, Pitta ha- has you know aggravation, anger, or irritation. And it's really about letting go of that to calm the Pitta, to move into that meditative state, that ability withdraw to withdraw the senses and and sit. Or move if you're doing a walking meditation. I should say, let the mind sit metaphorically. Mm-hmm. Just let the mind sit. Nature is a wonderful thing for Pitta. Just to feel the breeze and, and the cool early morning times is a wonderful time for Pitta too. The sweet times. Pitta, Pitta and Vata both are good at the sweet times of day mm-hmm. and evening. So. Um, the best time to meditate, to bring that sattvic um, quality in is at, is at the cusp of, of dawn, you know, the, the night and day in the morning and the day and night in the evening. Because that's when we, uh, everything balances outside, you know, in nature automatically. We have, there's a time of balance. There's a time when we, when we, breathe through both nostrils, both the it and pingala become active, which is why it's a, it's a favored time for meditation. Um, 
So, and Kappa, they need to move a little more. So they're already very, very devotional. They want to um, let go of the sticky ways. So for Kappa to meditate, they might want to um, vary their techniques to explore different kinds of techniques. And I'm just talking off the top of my head because I don't have a lot of kappa in in my own um, prakriti, in my own constitution. But um, the main thing is to, they, they will be consistent. They want to stay alert and not fall into a, there's, it's like Eckhart Tolle says, it's, it's rising above the level of thought instead of falling below the level of thought. Hmm. And one time on my very first Panchakarma that I did, that I experienced, um, was in a little town of, of a lot of Ayurvedic people in this town. And there was a lot of meditation there. And you could kind of tell, I was fascinated because you could tell the differentiation between two people and two groups of people. There are the people that had risen above the level of thought, and there are the people that had fallen below and become kind of like um, their energies had fallen, become more dull. Hmm. And so it's about it's about staying alert and awake. I've and, never, sorry, I just I've never heard that quote before, and that is so spot on. I think in terms of of any spiritual practice, but meditation specifically. And talking about the kapha and making sure that they don't become too, too lulled into a sense of comfort or sliding into maybe starting to fall asleep or nodding off. Yeah, or it becomes kind of like sludge, mm. duller, and because that's just exa- exacerbating kapha dosha. And you know, we don't we want to keep everything sattvic and balanced because when the doshas are balanced, that's when sattva appears. And it's the sattvic state that, that where we find that spark to return to source, mm. that drive to, to experience ourselves, to experience our Atman, our divine spark that resides in the heart center. Mm. So beautiful. And those are really good suggestions. I think that's really helpful for a lot of people to be like, okay, what kind of a meditation should I consider, at least as a starting point, if trying to work within an Ayurvedic frame to support the yoga practice? And and then also the really cool thing, too, with some of these suggestions that you just gave is people could, um, depending on the season and what time of year we're in, people could also perhaps adapt some of these practices, um, not just for their prakriti, but for the season that we're in. Absolutely. And there's another suggestion I'd like to make is to use your senses. It's our our senses that take in our present moment. And even though we're turning our senses inward, to use them as leverage to balance. So like for a kappa, you might want to use some diffuse and essential oil that would be like, you know, orange and peppermint, a mandarin orange or wild orange and peppermint into your room to to kind of keep you alert and um and you know the incense does that certain incenses and it's like nag champa so sattvic it's so sweet it's very 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 sweet and that's so good for vata and pitta um although you want to make sure that you 
if you're indoors, you don't want to be polluting with too much of that because you, you just kind of <laughs> take it around the room once and then snuff it out. But um, yeah, so you have your senses, you have your, your meditation area, the colors you put in. You could have stimulating colors or you could have sattvic colors. Mine is kind of a, a golden yellowy okra color because to build ojas. Um, oh, just building colors are gold and and uh, yellows and saffrons and peaches and those kind of colors are very oh, just building. Grounding colors are earth tones, duh, you know. <laughs> but using that kind of thing in your meditation space is very, very helpful. So if you know where you need to go, you can definitely um, use that smell, touch, sound, it. Chanting, um, and it, it's it's even in your head. It can be more powerful if you say it in your head. Like um, just you know to learn a, a chant and then just sing it in your head as you're moving into your meditation room. Very helpful for all the doshas. Mm. Yeah, I love that. What's switching gears a little bit though? What um, so Jotish or Jotisha? Um, what can you give us just like sort of a brief overview of that science and specifically relating to like natal chart and the birth chart reading? Okay, I'm not a Jotisha expert at all. Yes, and that's um, totally okay. Okay, so Jotisha is the study of light. And of course, we know that everything is energy, and that's even been proven by modern science. So everything is energy, and so the heavenly bodies reflect lights in certain ways. And when we look up at the stars, there are, there are um, the, the light is coming to us. And these lights have qualities, just like everything has qualities. We have the ten pairs of qualities in Samkhya, and that... Um, make up the, that describe the elements that combine to form doshas or uh, however you want to put that. There are a couple of different ways you can put that. Mm -hmm. But so um, these lights have qualities. And so it's reading the stars and the heavenly bodies. It's taking, it's like a meter for what's happening with all the lights at the time of birth. So we have our birth chart uh, and it is um, Vedic psychology, or psychology, Vedic um, astrology is different. It has different purpose slightly. I think that Western astrology could be used maybe in, for similar um, purposes as the, the Vedic astrology or Jyotisha, but it really comes from the Vedas, and which is... Um, downloaded information really from the ether from the space from beyond the ether as the vedas were it's it, your birth chart is going to tell you you can just determine your constitution from your birth chart it's based on the ascendant rather than the sun sign and so it's what stars run your horizon um determines the qualities of your birth chart. 
and there are um, different houses, just like there are in Western astrology. There are nakshatras, nakshatras. There, you can tell. Let me see. I want to be organized in how I say this. So you have your birth chart, which will give your your basic qualities, but you also, as a, as it sets up, um, like these waves that of cycles of influences throughout your life so you can follow these waves and find out these periods of when you will be um have different influences like when is the best time for growth and when is the best time for starting a business when is the best time to marry and have your family and and when is the time you need to be more careful about this or that and when is the time to be more careful about your health one of the ways that I um, have started to study Jyotisha is to learn about um, medical influences uh, because there are people that if you, depending on like the placement of your Saturn, you might be, um, or Shani in, in Sanskrit, um, you may be more prone to becoming arthritic. And so it's important to do things like if you walk barefoot a lot, to not walk on cold floors, but put little sockies on or slippers when you're in the house. Um, just to keep that warmth on your feet, your connection to the earth stable and warm and flowing. If it's cold, you know, that coldness um, constricts flow. So you um, want to keep that warm, keep your connection to the earth and keep those joints warm. It's, it's odd, isn't it? But it, it's just true. And your moon sign, is where I should say, where your moon is placed is also very important as far as your connection to nurture and to um, your connection to the feminine, your feminine nature. Um, this um, can be... There, there are various remedies that are, are fascinating. And they might seem kind of woo-woo at first, but here's an example. One remedy that I was given for my conflicted moon was to, and this was by Swami Ganshayam, who gave me my spiritual name, and um, also gave me the charge to go forward in Ayurveda. And he um, told me that at night I needed to get a sterling silver cup which was very difficult to find. I ended up just getting one of those little baby cups, you know, that hmm. you give at baptism and things. And I put pure water in it, set in my window at night for the moonlight. And then in the morning before I got up, I had to take that cup and out of the window and, and say a little blessing and drink the water. And then place my left foot on the floor first. And when I got out of the bed, to um, kneel and put my forehead to the floor. And you think, whoa, you know, if you didn't know that that was to, if you didn't know the qualities, you would think that that sounds really woo-woo, but it was um, actually quite helpful hmm. because of the silver being the moon color and having the qualities of coolness and then, and then infusing the water element with, the water, which was full of water element, with the um, 
moonlight and then drinking it and then starting with my left foot, which is the, the moon side of the body, placing that on the earth first to ground that element and then placing my third eye to the floor to, to seal it. It, it makes, makes perfect sense now. Yeah, but oh. me going through Ayurveda school and learning a little bit about Jyotisha to realize, oh my gosh, duh, that's that's absolutely makes it seems like common sense now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, and the thing that's so awesome too with Jyotisha is if you have somebody that you're working with, and I've only been able to go for a couple of different readings throughout the years. Um, I'd love to find somebody I could work with on a consistent basis, but I just haven't yet. But you can, the more that you work with somebody on that, the more specific the chart can become to get to those practices, like what you're talking Mm -hmm. about. And for myself, when I've had my chart read before, and it's more just like the general information in terms of like, okay, this period of your life, this is kind of like what you were talking about. This is the period of your life where you're going to be working a lot. And this is maybe the period of your life where you have to be really careful about something. And Mm -hmm. it can, though, be so specific. I know I was told once that I have a basically like an an undiscovered musical talent, according to my chart. And Mm -hmm. I have never played an instrument. I mean, I played the violin when I was like in fourth grade or something, but I'm I'm not especially musically inclined. So I was really surprised to hear that. And so I keep waiting. I'm like, okay, when am I going to find this? And the the, um, person who did my reading, he said, it's not a typical instrument. It's something, he's like, I don't know exactly what it is, but it's something a little different. And so every time I come in and I, I see an instrument that I've never really noticed before or known before, I'm like, maybe this is it. Maybe this is where I have my hidden musical talent that can come out. And uh, bum, 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 bum. maybe it's a tambura. Uh, maybe. I don't know. And I had a reading one time where um, they said I have to be really careful for my husband. When he turns 40, he might have a head injury. Mm-hmm. And so things like that that can come through in these readings, I think, are so fascinating. Um what do you think, though, or what has your experience been personally in terms of, like, do you ever get too frightened that you might have too informa- too much information? Or do you think it's only beneficial in terms of uh, using it as a guiding principle? Oh, I think that totally depends upon where you are in your journey, in your spiritual journey. Because um, becoming frightened is afraid of what's going to unfold. It's, it's not being seated in yourself. It's not, it, it is being steeped in duality of, I don't want this to happen. I do want this to happen. It's having an agenda of what life has to be like for you to be comfortable or a person to be comfortable. And we're, our, our whole process is to not do that. And just to be able to sit back and watch the incredible, amazing experience of watching the universe unfold moment by moment, whatever it is, whatever it brings. We have this experience, and in our own true self, we're always pure, perfect, and pain-free. And 
Um, and that's I, that was a quote, Ramakrishna Ananda, <laughs> uh, from, <laughs> and, and so um, from Mount Palomar. That's where he is in Southern California. I don't want to say that without giving credit, um, but we are. We're all pure, perfect, and pain-free, and seated in our true self. So, to become afraid is to not be able to use it to to like maneuver. It's like you're you're driving down the road and you see, you know, an obstacle. And so all you do is you just swerve around it. And mm-hmm. to think of it that way, okay, I'm I'm gonna navigate. I'm gonna navigate these circumstances of life unfolding. And I navigate them so I can um so I can maintain my equanimity. Because unless you um are completely seated in self, we will have things that will disrupt us or that will um you know every day I, I just I don't know the further I get the more I realize how nowhere I am in in this but it, it just it just keeps moving forward anyway you just you just work it and work it and work it and maneuver maneuver around the obstacles so anticipating an obstacle or avoiding it is is absolutely great it's just in the sutras it says future pain can and should be avoided yes so we we might as well know where our you know, pitfalls are you know mm, i, I love that the briar patch if you if you you know know oh my gosh that looks like it's soft and i want to run through there but that's actually a briar patch. So maybe I just, you know, I'll just go around it and pick and look at the daisies over here on this mountainside. <laughs> right. Well, and it's it's our perception of an experience that is what creates the pain or conversely the pleasure, like that that aversion mm-hmm. or that attachment. And I I think that's the lesson and that's the the goal that we're striving towards with all of these practices is to come back to that space of equanimity even when we're faced with big challenges or even when we're having a really great day. (laughs) It's not getting too driven by the high highs or the low lows. It's like, huh, okay, isn't this interesting? Here's an opportunity. Here's something that's being reflected back to me. How can I strive to find that peace or clarity of mind even when I'm being pulled so far off of course. Mm-hmm. And so I agree with everything that you've said where it's it's like, okay, maybe you are going to have some sort of inkling of something unpleasant coming up in your life, but it's the way in which you look at it, the lens through which you view that experience that can create the suffering or the pain. Uh, yes, it's all mind. It's all mind. And remember, the mind is is the clouds that get in the way of our experiencing our true nature as self. Ah, oh, absolutely. So that's why that's why yoga is the is the path of remedy for psychology for the mind, and Ayurveda is actually the physical to keep the body in balance. Um, but it's the yoga that is the the real thing. And then the Jyotishya is about the causal body to find out what are my samskaras, to read what the samskaras are so that uh, we can we can burn through some of our karmas hmm. and transcend the cycle of birth and death. 
what's so interesting to me was it was an aha moment <laughs> because I was never told this like from the outside and and it just is such a um basic thing you know how Ayurveda is very connected to nature to creation to that manifest world to our bodies and so there are always a cycle and the doshas are associated with different parts of the cycle so we start uh, well we start with the kapha time where we have that building of earth element in our life cycle we're putting on a lot we're growing our bodies are growing bigger and and um, more substantial. And then we have the, the pitta time, which is the time when we work on our world and transform it because pitta transforms. So we develop our careers and our families and our households and da 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 da. And then we move into the vata time where we start to become more frail, more subtle, and we move out of the limelight, become more supportive in our roles, become a little bit more ready we become more detached in a way because we're moving more into the ether. We become, one thing I've noticed moving into my Vata time of life is that I'm becoming more detached from my body. Hmm, I interesting. See it as I look at my body and with morbid fascination of, you know, the, the deterioration of the body and just becoming more, less strong, I should say, less strong, more wrinkles, um, looser skin, whatever it is, you know, whatever it is. And, and I find that I still feel like myself inside, but I look at my body and think, who is this? Which means that I'm, you know, not as connected. And so we have these cycles and it always goes in that order. Kappa. And you can say Kapha or Kappa. It doesn't matter to me. Kappa is, is Sanskrit. Kapha is Hindi. And and arose by any name is hmm. the same. Um, and the uh, and so it goes: kapa, pitta, and vata. Kapa, pitta, and vata. And what is really fascinating is that at the end of vata time, there's a renewal and then rebirth with kapa. We do it with our breath. We take the inhalation in the kapa, the nurturing part of the breath, the transformational digestion of the prana of the breath at the top of the breath and then we exhale and that is a purifying the vata vata purifies so that is a vata time of the breath until the death of the breath at the bottom of the breath the bottom of the breath is a very amazing place because that is a place of the secret of renewal and rebirth and because because i carry this load of carbon dioxide waste or whatever it is, I have the urge to take in a new breath. And because I carry my karma after my physical body dies in the life cycle, because I carry my karma, karma, I have the samskaras in the causal body, I have the urge to come in to be reborn into whatever form. So, and what's interesting about Samkhya is that everything falls from higher vibration into denser and denser vibrations. And to make a long story short, it ends in the spectrum of vibrational frequencies of the ether, um, the space within which everything manifests, the air. And then as things in the ether become denser vibrations and start to move in that space and then, and then they become more dense and you start to have friction, radiance, and fire. So that's the fire element. And as the fire flows and becomes more dense, the flowing changes, it transforms. 
into a, a different kind of a flow and becomes water. And water is a nutrient soup which nourishes everything. And as it becomes more dense, it turns it the moist quality of water dries up and it becomes earth. And earth is structure, stability, it's dry, it's hard, it's uh, stable. And so we have these whole things. And, and so as we move from the causal body into manifestation in the physical body through these five elements, because we have to have all five elements to manifest, we move from the, the ether, and ether and air make vata dosha, are associated with vata dosha, fire and a little bit of water with pitta, and uh, water and earth with kapha. So we're moving vata, pitta, kapha, bingo, we're born, and we start going the other way hmm. from kapha through pitta. And you can take it elementally, and as a matter of fact, my really good teacher said, when in doubt with the doshas, take it back to the elements. Mm. And so you move through earth, water, fire, air, and ether until finally you're so etheric you can't sustain your physical body anymore and your physical body falls away. That is the cycle of birth and death right there in a nutshell. Mm. And that's what we're working to transcend. And when we get, when, with our, when our causal body becomes clear, then sattva will take us right back to source. And we will come back as, as if we come back to earth at all, it would be as the breeze or, or in the blades of grass or just as, as life itself, as a part of life itself hmm. in, in all of its manifestations. And, and the physical form will be, you know, dissipated. Sounds lovely, doesn't it? Oh, it so does. It does. And that was such a nice explanation of it, too. And yeah, breaking it down into like, okay, what's the distillation of this philosophy? What's the distillation of what we're here to do or be or experience or clear? Yeah. Oh, Maggie, I feel like I could. we could be talking forever. And I would love that. <laughs> But I know we need to wrap this up and, and say goodbye. And I hope, though, perhaps there's some way that we could get you over here to Norway. So maybe we can talk more about that. And uh... Well, let's talk about that. I'm, I'm open. So. Yeah. And, and I'm at the time of life that it's all I want to do is serve. So however I can serve is what I want to do. There's... You know, that's, that's wonderful about this time of life. Mm. I'm still healthy and I'm healthy enough to do whatever. And, um, and I hope it will stay that way. So it's just, it's wonderful. It's been such an honor to be up with you in this last hour or so. And just a, a thrill. You're doing so many wonderful things and blessings to you. Blessings to everyone who listens to this. I I hope that they find it helpful and informative and and a little bit joyous because there's so much joy in all of these teachings. And today's Thursday. It's a auspicious day to honor our teachers. And so I would just so much like to honor all of those that that 
discerned the the hymns of the Vedas and and made them into discernible teachings for us and all the the teachers before us um, in yoga and Ayurveda and and of all the lineages, the ones that we know in the Western world and the ones that we don't know. And and there is no franchise on the truth. So be it um, whatever form it takes. And and even in the religious forms, which are more, you know, there's a lot of kapha in them, a lot of structure, um, just blessings to all of it and with gratitude and and om namah shivaya. It's mm. just a wonderful world. Such a, we are so blessed to be here and to have this form to be able to know and to be able to study and practice yoga. Mm. Oh, so beautiful. So beautiful. Thank you, Maggie. Uh, we'll have a wonderful day and um, we'll be in touch. Yes, you have a wonderful rest of your day. And the only thing I know how to say is Hadabra. Hadabra. Yes. Hilson. Good. Right? Hilson. Yeah. Hilson. That's like the greet. Usually you say that like at the bottom of an email, I think. Uh, don't. Oh, okay. Well, you know more than me. Uh, yeah. I don't know. It's, it's unfortunately, <laughs> my knowledge is a little uh, weak right now, but that's going to change. So. Well, well. All right. Um, Yelskadai world. <laughs> I love you world. Yes. All right. Bye-bye, Dr. Kodlasova. Thank you.